It is Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023, and welcome to episode 243 of Fault Lines, an SIS podcast that typically gets you quickly up to speed on national security and foreign policy debates shaking up America. Today, though, we have another special treat for you, the fourth episode in our summer series, Breaking Barriers, Understanding the AI Revolution. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, because admittedly, I've been off the airwaves lately, I'm Jessica Jones, NSI's Deputy Executive Director, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Ann Newberger, the Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology. Prior to serving on the National Security Council, um, Ms. Newberger served as the Director of Cybersecurity for the NSA, where she led NSA's cybersecurity mission, as well as leading the agency's election security effort and serving as Assistant Deputy Director of NSA's Operations Directorate. So before I ask you questions about what the Biden administration is doing in terms of AI policy and where you see advancements in AI, I kind of wanted to do some level setting for those of us who are not experts in the space and you know, we hear a lot about AI in the news. You can't go one day without it being in, in the headlines somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to get your take on some kind of big questions. A lot of the talk on, uh, about AI focuses on the dangers, but, you know, how do you see AI transforming the national security landscape? You know, what are some of the promising and beneficial uses of AI? And what do you see as the biggest real threats arising from AI's advancements? It's so good to be here with you, Jessica. Thank you so much. And those are big questions there. So let's <laughs> unpack that a bit. So I love the way you started with promising and beneficial because AI is just a really good example of a technology that's dual use. As the president has said, we want to absolutely reap the benefits for our society, for our economies, but we also really need to carefully manage the attendant risks. Um, So how do we approach that? So let's start to your point. And you asked a two-part question. You said, where do we see it from a national security perspective? So I'll give to big picture, and then I want to get to more exemplars. So from a big picture perspective, two areas I think about often on the national security side, I come out of the intelligence community where one of the biggest challenges we grapple with is how to make sense out of the masses of data. There's more and more data. And particularly when we're thinking about a time-sensitive threat, the ability to make sense rapidly of the most important intelligence in time to warn and address it. So certainly AI's ability to learn off patterns, to identify potentially to help us make sense of that quickly is promising. The second part of that is, you know, in the intelligence community, if you want to know, tell me, you know, you know, as an, as an intelligent consumer, if you're sitting at your desk and say, hmm, I really need to know something about this particular Russian intelligence unit, this particular Chinese cyber unit, you can write a query and you get back many, many reports. And you have to read those reports to kind of summarize the intelligence community's knowledge of a given topic. The ability to potentially use a chat GPT-like capability to say, summarize the most relevant points around this, you know, 20 years of intelligence reporting on a given topic can potentially just democratize access to intelligence and frankly enable our human analysts to focus on new reporting, new insights um, in just a really more impactful way. So that's one area specific to national security. When we think about the cyber arena, and what keeps me up at night are the vastness of the attack surface. You think about critical infrastructure in the United States, connected critical infrastructure, right? Hugely compelling from a promising and beneficial perspective in terms of how do we do energy grid optimization better? How do we ensure that You know, I visited Chicago recently and saw the use of AI to improve the the speed and the efficiency of restaurant health inspections. Where should they go? Where should they find, right? Huge benefits there. 
On the other hand, there are some particular key risks we worry about. But on the benefit side, you can see we're improving key services and critical infrastructure. You can see we're helping us write more secure code by training systems on well-written code versus the full body of code that includes human errors, and then using that to kind of test code before we release it, that's an, an area of promise. So on the risk side, you know, we see we really need, and that was the reason the president convened the group of companies back in May, and then reconvened them to get their voluntary commitments. We need to ensure that AI models that we're developing and integrating are safe, trustworthy, and secure. And what do we mean by that? By safe, you know, we've seen that some models can create harmful content or produce mm-hmm. hallucinations, saying things that very confidently that are inaccurate or fictitious. So that's one key risk, particularly if you have people using ChatGPT like to ask medical questions. Very concerning. By trustworthy, you know, we're concerned to make sure that AI is behaving as expected. So Think about a model, for example, that might be trained on radiological imaging or ultrasound imaging to accelerate um, the identification of potential illness. If that model behaves in ways that's not expected, you know, that's really troubling. You see huge benefit potentially in terms of accelerating, in terms of machines finding things that perhaps a human eye could miss. But we want to ensure that we understand the conclusions models come to. And we understand where a use of a model really needs a human in the loop to ensure that before some decisions are made, they're right. And then the final thing by secure, you know, we're very concerned that models not be hacked um, or made less useful, less trustworthy. So, for example, you know, I recently visited Cincinnati where they have a combined sewage overflow system. It's an old hundred year old system. And there have been, you know, federal consent degrees that have required upgrades to that system. There are the potential for AI algorithms to better manage water in existing pipes, which could then make it a lot less cheaper to upgrade those systems. But you can also see where a model like that, that's managing which water goes where, if maliciously attacked, could cause harm to a population, cause illness, et cetera. So that last piece about ensuring models are secure, that they're trustworthy and that they're safe, that's an example of what we must ensure to make sure that as we start using AI, it's trustworthy and that we're protected from adversarial use of AI. No, that's great. And and before I dive into some of your examples about safety, security, and trust. So as you mentioned, um, the pledge uh, by a bunch of tech companies last week made headlines. And so, you know, for those on the outside, it's hard to even imagine how much conversation and workshopping goes into, you know, getting a a very large stakeholders on, on board with these kind of crucial fundamental pledges. You know, what do you think, you know, the Biden administration has also talked about an EO on, on AI, and you see a lot of statements on Capitol Hill from congressional lawmakers. It's such a challenging area, rapidly developing technology with with many stakeholders, a very quick uptake by the public. Your mention of ChatGBT, people are beginning to realize how much AI comes into their everyday life. What do you think are some of the challenges on, you know, for the government to stay ahead, you know, to think about policies and regulations that both embrace innovation um, and also, though, to your point, address these concerns about privacy, malicious use and the like? You you hit two key issues that are really the biggest challenge for policymakers. One is the speed at which the technology is advancing. And two, the fact that we can't just sit and wait. We need to write policy that can address this technology 
but also that addresses future unforeseen developments of that. And that's really the tricky part of the policy. And I think the three pieces you talked about are our attempt to do so. So first, the president convening the companies to say, you need to make voluntary commitments to really ensure that before models are released, you've red teamed them, you have good cybersecurity mm-hmm. practices to protect them, you've ensured that you're bringing in experts in different domains. The second piece of that then is the government using and doing everything in its power to protect against the risk of AI, which is the executive order that's under development. That is a final bridge to new regulation, which only the Hill can do. And as you know, Speaker Schumer has kicked off that, that mm-hmm. piece. So you see all three components, private sector, ensuring fully leveraging what government can do now, and then coming up with new regulation to address the new technology and the attendant new risks it brings. So speaking of Senator Schumer, he had mentioned that, and this is you know not a new concept, that um, policymakers sometimes not out of touch, but maybe not the most informed on, you know, rapidly advancing technologies, their use applications. And so he, you know, wanted tutorials or workshops to make sure that Mm -hmm. members of Congress, you know, know what the technologies they're talking about. You know, how big is a challenge for something like AI, whether it's public understanding, so they can understand the laws and policies they're, they're coming into play with, or for policymakers, like how much do you think of a learning curve? You know, how much do we need to catch up? It's a great question. And I think Senator Schumer has talked about why he's using a different approach here to address that issue, a concern that when you have traditional hearings, it's less an opportunity to learn and interact versus I think what he's been thinking of, which is bringing in experts in smaller groups to educate. And that's really key here. But that being said, we also know the technology will continue to evolve. So there's no one and done. Mm -hmm. We have to continuously monitor and watch and learn to ensure that while we need to move out quickly, We then need to ensure that what we put in place is correct, reassess, and kind of circulate through that over time. And then since we're kind of on the policymaker bent, um, you know, obviously, or it seems that AI implicates much more than just, you know, within the borders of the U.S., it's it's global. And it seems that international cooperation um, discussion is crucial for AI, whether it's you know, U.S. the U.S. government working with partners and allies, whether it's AI research or AI policies, you know, how, you know, how does the government view working with partners abroad, whether it comes to research or whether it comes to maybe even international norm setting? It's a really great question. So, you know, President Biden is all about alliances and partnerships, and the administration is actively working to pursue international coalitions, both for the good AI governance and and learning, as well as the regulatory side. You know, back in January, we worked closely with the European Union on an administrative agreement to partner on AI for good, in five specific areas for government, areas like emergency management. How do we ensure that we can rapidly respond to emergencies? Extreme weather and the attendant impact on food. Are there, for example, can we predict weather and use that to help understand how to adjust irrigation policies, growing policies, et cetera? So that work kicked off. And, you know, interestingly, Jessica, so the German ambassador who just retired, she assembled a group of female ambassadors, invited me to give a talk on AI to the group. And then a couple of the ambassadors there, one from Latin America, one from Africa, said, don't leave us behind. AI will offer such promise in education to help customize education for kids. Please give, you know, help ensure our communities are not left behind. And I think that's a big part of what our approach is as well, is to make sure that not only the developed nations benefit, but that we can be instrumental in elevating the voices of the developing world as well to ensure they benefit. And then similarly, as you know, we're also working, of course, on the regulatory approach, working closely with the EU on their regulatory approach, working to take our voluntary commitments to brief other countries Mm -hmm. after they went, you know, right before they went public to help kind of create that threshold of 
what should be required of companies in the space, how we all need to think about risk in the space. So really, it's both aspects of that. Let's harness the good and let's manage the risks as part of a global coalition. You know, because I'm just an optimist. Um, so AI for good, mm-hmm. just a little bit, you know, what you, you gave a, a bunch of great examples um, from those conversations. Is there any in particular that you st- that stand out that you think this is the most interesting, you know, c- here's a great example of AI for good that people aren't talking about that really could, you know, impact the world. I'm just wondering, you know, when you say keeps you up at night in the bad way, what keeps you up at night in the good way? You know, multiple different areas. I'll give, you know, one of them, for example, is drug discovery. The process of drug discovery, simulation of proteins, testing is lengthy, costly, and difficult. So the potential for AI to both identify potential you know, substances that offer a lot of promise and then help simulate some of that early testing is huge. I think we have currently a number of drugs that are in first stage clinical trials that were AI developed. And then I think about it, you know, in a very human way, I grew up with a a cousin who was blind and we used to go for walks together. And, you know, it, it taught me to see the sidewalk and crossing a street in a different way. And all she had was a stick. And you have to wonder if that stick is connected to the internet and can Mm -hmm. see a speeding car coming, can identify the fastest way for a blind person to get to where they need to go. Because look, navigating the streets, busy streets in a city is difficult. Think about what that can do. Mm -hmm. And, And I think finally in that way, you know, when the president met with a group of AI researchers in San Francisco, one of the, and there was a lot of focus on risk and concerns and all the the pieces of AI that we need to carefully think about. And then one researcher said, you know, my father, you know, lost his vision at the end of his life. And he kept telling me, you're a leading AI researcher. There's so many people growing old. How could this help us as our capabilities degrade to navigate and maintain our independence? So I think you certainly, you see the areas of computer vision, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which are a key area of advancements. How could that help people who are losing vision to still retain you know, to help retain more precision in in what they see. So I think those are some of the the areas that are really most heartening. And then, you know, a lot of these examples are, um, you know, developments are coming a lot from the private sector and industry, you know, technology. The, the It seems as if the innovation ecosystem is being taken over by the private sector in a lot of ways. You know, one, I don't know if you agree with that or not, um, but if even somewhat true, you know, in, in particular when it comes to AI, how can the government and private sector, you know, best collaborate? How can the government support industry in advancing AI and vice versa? You know, what does, how does industry work with government? It's a great question. So first you see, you know, there's efforts that the National Science Foundation Foundation has in the national AI research related area where there's compute that's available to researchers to use to do work that they need to do. And in fact, NSF is funding AI institutes in a number of communities around the country focused on a particular application area of AI. Um, and it goes back to the way we've looked at research in various technology areas, back to the 1950s, which helped make advancements in those areas and really democratize access. So different kinds of researchers could see that. And I think in addition to that, as we think about the way AI could, for example, improve critical government services, that's another area for partnership. Because let's say we think about, you know, a connected grid and where we best need charging stations based on weather, based on traffic, based on commuting patterns. Certainly, you know, AI models can help ensure that government investment um, is done in the most efficient way and then stays up to date to serve its citizens. How we both, you know, the innovation we, the pride of America is really the, the fact that we're leading in the space and American innovators are leading. 
And where government partners is to say, let's bring regulators who are accustomed to thinking about safety and risk and say, what are the ways that we just refine that innovation so that we're not caught by surprise when the model does something unexpected? So I think bridging to bringing together domain experts, government and private sector to as we're looking at how to regulate in the space to ensure that it's light touch to manage the risks. And also, frankly, where there are policies that are preventing use of AI that could help us um, advance economically, that help could help drive down bias, whether it's loan decisions, whether it's in education applications, that those are done in a way that kind of are true to, to who we are as a country and our values. And if you were going to give a report card on, on this process of, you know, light touch, using domain experts to help, you know, point out areas, where do you think we stand now? Is is the government doing a good job when it comes to working with the private sector on AI? Can it do better? You know, well, everyone can always better, but, or, you know, are there certain areas for improvement? I think that's what we're working through right now, right? So the, um, you saw the initial work where the president mm-hmm. brought together the leading CEOs and had a a conversation to say, you are partners in accountability. You need Americans to trust that, for example, when they get an answer out of AI or an image is generated, they know whether it's AI generated or they know whether it's a real image, right? If there is a a voice, a piece of a a voice cut of, of something, they need to know, is that is that AI generated because the voice models are so precise and so good? Or is that real? Because we see the dangers that, for example, very good voice models are bringing in the fraud arena, particularly vulnerable elderly populations. Mm. Um, so I think the president bringing them in and saying, we need you to act. And then companies coming back with their first set of commitments in those areas related to figuring out how to mark content, whether it's AI generated or not AI generated. That's an area where technically it's hard, right? Mm. There's some initial, there's some initial work, but more is needed. And I think that's where we come back and say, look, we'll do targeted cooperation on the research together, but you guys need to act even in parallel as we then work, for example, executive order that will put in place using the extent of our current authorities, how we need to look at managing for the potential bias based on what data uh, models are trained on, how we need to ensure, for example, that before AI models are integrated with something physical so they can kick off a, robo- a robot, they can kick off an action, that there's certain principles in place. Um, that's the work, that's the current partnership. So where I put us to your question is, I think we're both showing the power of public-private partnership in the way the president has convened, but also showing that our lessons learned from social media, our lessons Mm. learned from cyber is that we're connected societies, risks come with that, and we have to be thoughtful and build it securely from the outset. And I think that's what we're trying to do with both the EO, the Hills work to rapidly learn and and, uh, build regulation. And then you touched upon it, and it's, I think, one of the more tangible um, you know, uses of AI with deep fakes. Um, and you, you talk about labeling, uh, you know, how serious is the threat? I mean, we've seen, you know, we see photos, videos, and it makes headlines, um, when things are debunked or shown not to be, um, authentic. I mean, how can we both, you know, while AI is generating a lot of that kind of deep fake to, to kind of counter this disinformation and, and help enhance, you know, um, accountability and, and authenticity? It's a great question. We're really troubled by the generation of very precise looking deep fakes. I think you see what's going on 
in the realm of child pornography and in the realm of, you know, splicing real women's faces on, you know, to create pornographic images. That's a way to really subject vulnerable populations in a horrible way, right? So I think to that way, there's a race between offense and defense, much as there is on, you know, malware or finding vulnerabilities for good. Mm -hmm. And I think the key is really two things. One, we need to make advanced, we need to both start watermarking content. So it shows, you know, who generated it? Was it AI generated? um, Particularly for voice video and images, And then really work to ensure that in that race between offense and defense, you'll put a watermark on, folks will figure out how to remove it, figure out a more sophisticated way, it's going to go back and forth, that the ability to maintain it always stays one step ahead. Because anonymity is not a good thing. And there needs to be accountability for it. The aspect of artists and, and singers and songwriters who want to maintain the copyrights to the content they work so hard to generate. So I think that's a key piece there. So it's, you know, this the example of um, have, it's trying to offense versus defense and, and mm-hmm. staying on when, you know, uh, you, you get someone go, you know, sides up your roadblock. It leads me to wonder, you know, at least we talk a lot about the cyber workforce and increasing the pipeline. It seems like we're going to have a demand for AI related workforce. And, you know, how do we start to build a kind of a skilled workforce with those skill sets and, and that creativity to meet kind of all of these challenges you've laid out? It's a great question, kind of a, a cool DARPA announcement coming um, on that kind of offense and defense race mm-hmm. on the cyber side, because it's something that we want to bring in a community, um, getting to your point about people to work this, you know, much as in the cyber arena, you know, jumpstarting programs like finding vulnerabilities, you know, um, was a way to get lots of people interested mm-hmm. in you know, bug bounty programs, really democratized and brought many more people into working this. I think that's what we're trying to do on the AI side with that upcoming announcement. Back to people. It's one of the key areas that the president's asked us to look at in the executive order, a recognition that both in policy, we need folks in government to guide that. And because we really do believe that government services can be made um, more accessible, more efficient and effective. So ensuring that we lead in that way. So there are you know, we've been thinking about various ways to both attract talent to government and AI, to both create more talent. So there's a difference between being a, le- being a leading AI researcher and knowing how to use existing models to train, for example, to answer detailed questions about the tax code. And I think that second category is where we're excited and hoping to bring in more individuals to help ensure that all the data we models on those to help both learn and make government services more efficient and also make them more accessible. Great. And so I know I don't want to take up too much of your time, but what kind of national security podcast would, would we be if we didn't at least ask a little bit about China? You know, China has, of course, when we think about tech competition and, and your peer competitor, think of China and their investments in AI um, development. And they have their own next generation AI development plan, which is to capture the global lead in AI development by 2030. You know, what do you, what does the the government make of China's AI means and capabilities? I mean, should the U.S. be worried how it needs to to lead? I love the question. And I love that their goal is capturing the lead by 2030, e.g. vigorously try to keep up with the United States, (laughs) which is terrific. And that's, again, a tribute to the innovation that America's democratic approach that attracts individuals from around the world and is, uh, it, it really creates. 
We've led the world in AI research and development, you know, so much so that China now has to redouble its effort to compete with us. So we've watched China's approach to both the development and regulation with a great deal of interest, right? Because we're not just two countries competing, we're two different models of government interacts with its citizens competing. And I'd highlight their recent policy directive, which is interesting because it explicitly restricts domestic usage of AI, as it must be in conformance with socialist principles, while being particularly permissive with AI R&D in their research centers and in commercial use of AI, you know, for overseas commercial purposes. So they've put in place guardrails for domestic audiences, but not for export or usage around the world. So, and we really think that in the long run, our approach, which is safe by design AI, whether it's domestic or international, you need the trust, you need the safety, you need to ensure that that supports responsible innovation is the, is the better approach. And, you know, just a, another thought on this, there was an interesting piece in foreign affairs recently entitled, you know, I think it was called the illusion of China's AI prowess. And it was interesting because we often, you know, talk about their power and it said, while even if they're innovative, it'll be difficult to incorporate, integrate AI into their society because it's such a controlled society. For example, the guardrails on ensuring that speech, you know, toes to the CCP line is particularly limiting. So we just, I think we're pretty confident that that innovative, responsible regulation, you know, that really brings private and public sector together to use the technology will win out in the end. But that doesn't mean we're not watching carefully and thinking carefully about that balance between AI for good. I think it's captured in the term responsible innovation, AI for good and regulation. Well, there's no better way to end with, we don't have to be as worried as, as we think we have to. So with that, that's a wrap. Thank you so much to Ms. Newberger for joining us on Fault Lines for our fourth installment of Breaking Barriers, Understanding the AI Revolution. Please, if you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review and join us next week for another episode on AI.